Continuing its up-to-the-minute coverage of the invasion, CBS World News now presents 15 minutes of news and analysis. First, a summary of the latest developments by Ned Calmer, followed by an analysis by Quincy Howe. Mr. Calmer. At a solemn moment in our national history, President Roosevelt has led the American people in prayer for the fighting men who tonight are entering the second day of their invasion on the Normandy coast of France. The president also brought us, less than an hour ago, the latest word on military operations. Thus far, he said, they have been successful. Meantime, the first of the Allied wounded are returning to Britain, and the thoughts of the whole civilized world are with them, and with their comrades who are still in the midst of the fight. It's now more than 24 hours since our invasion got underway, and it's a good moment to look back over the welter of millions of words that have poured in on us to see just what is clear and definite in the picture. There are only two trustworthy sources, the communiques from General Eisenhower's quarters and the statements by Allied leaders, notably President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill. The German communiques, though they may be misleading and exaggerated, must be taken into consideration at this stage of the invasion when so much is happening and so little is officially revealed by our side. Then there's the unending series of reports and rumors from neutral cities in Europe which may or may not be skillfully planted Nazi propaganda. They have to be sifted, and if they look probable, they ought to be mentioned. But first, what's disclosed officially by the Allies? The communique from Allied headquarters on the first day's operations says that our initial landings in northern France were successful. It says the fighting continues under command of General Montgomery, that our naval casualties have been very light, but it doesn't specify as to land casualties so far. Our planes, it says, continued operations in very great strength all day, and continuous fighter cover is being maintained over both our naval and land forces. The communique also reveals that two naval task forces launched assaults on France this morning, and they include the cruiser Augusta under Admiral Kirk and the cruiser Tuscaloosa under Admiral Dale. President Roosevelt gave his first report on the invasion by saying that operations are so far up to schedule. As of noon, American ship losses were two destroyers and one landing ship, he said, and aircraft losses about 1%. The battleship Nevada is in action. Mr. Churchill's reports are being given to the House of Commons, where he appeared twice today. It was Churchill who disclosed that Allied troops have penetrated nine and a half miles inland and have been fighting at the town of Caen, C-A-E-N, in Normandy. He seemed well pleased, even surprised, that our losses have been so slight up to now. But he warned that it's much too early to tell what course the battle may take in the coming days and weeks. Our troops have established lodgments, he said, on a broad front, and it appears we've achieved a tactical surprise. The Prime Minister called all these operations the most complicated and difficult which have ever occurred. Around Eisenhower's headquarters also, considerable optimism is reported, despite the fact that the weather on the Channel, which has been against us more than once in this war, is none too satisfactory at this hour. The weather element, it's now revealed, actually forced a postponement of the invasion by 24 hours. Originally, it was set by Eisenhower for the night of June 4 to 5. May or June are now known to have been the months selected for the invasion as long ago as the Tehran Conference. German reconnaissance was also caught sound asleep. It wasn't until after our armada of ships was well on its way from Britain that an enemy channel patrol spotted our movements not long before dawn. Our troops started out on their fateful mission in a gay but determined mood. 
We know definitely also that we maintain air superiority, that 11,000 planes are backing our invasion, that our airborne and paratroop actions were successful, and our losses in those planes small, and that about 4,000 Allied warships are supporting the landings and continuing to move reinforcements to the beachhead. But just where those beachheads are, other than the action in the Cao area mentioned by Mr. Churchill, has not been stated by the Allied command. To give official details on that would be to hand the Germans valuable information free. Our only detailed reports on this, however, come from the German high command. It's generally accepted that we put men ashore from landing craft at a number of points between the ports of Cherbourg and Lerave, which we have shelled, in the Bay de la Seine, where the Seine River empties into the channel. It's probable that our troops poured ashore on the vast white beaches of Deauville and its neighboring resorts, once so popular with Americans of the pre-war era. The German communique claims to have knocked out our airborne forces south of Havre and dropped our and trapped our troops at the mouth of the River Orne. There's an enemy report of battling near Rouen. Very heavy fighting continues along a front, estimated variously by the Nazis, from 15 to 100 miles in length. Within the past few hours, the Nazis have been reporting imminent new landings by the Allies. They say a British-American naval squadron is standing off Cherbourg and expect action in the region of Dunkirk and Calais. And a rumor in Turkey says the Allies have landed in Greece. Absolutely no confirmation from our side. One remarkable fact among all these developments is the poor showing of the German Air Force, said to have put only about 50 planes in the air so far today, though Marshal Goering is quoted as saying, we must repel the invasion even if it means the death of the Luftwaffe. But on this, as well as a great many other aspects of the invasion, we may know much more within the next two or three days. The European underground, obedient to its orders, has not yet risen in full strength. General Eisenhower, now directing operations from a trailer in England, will give the word. General de Gaulle may be in France soon. The other war fronts tonight are naturally out of the limelight, but in Europe they're going to become increasingly important as our vast three-way squeeze develops. In Russia, though the Red Army has not yet begun its expected offensive, American bombers and fighters made their first strike from bases in the Soviet Union. A raid on the German airfield at Galati in Romania. In Italy, where life in Rome is being swiftly returned to normal by the Allied military government, French troops have captured the road junction at Tivoli to the northeast of Rome, and the Fifth Army is pursuing the enemy to the north and west. In the war against Japan, our troops on Biak Island off New Guinea are now within a mile and a half of Mokma airfield and increasing their pressure all the time. The Burma fighting goes well for the Allies, but in China, the Japs have now fought their way into the outskirts of Changsha. On D-Day, there was no wild rejoicing in our own country. President Roosevelt's prayer has exemplified the American reaction. Flag-waving is at a minimum. Many communities are holding solemn meetings. Some festive events have been canceled. War workers everywhere kept on working. But all of us have felt, despite the gravity of the hour, a sense of relief that the waiting, at least, the long period of suspense is over. In Dallas, Texas, by the way, the invasion already has its first namesake. Invasia May Renfrew was born to a trucker's wife as the sirens sounded. The invasion news has been coming in now for nearly 24 hours on a wave of world excitement which hasn't yet reached its crest. You may have been one of those 
who were listening to their radio shortly after 12.30 a.m. Eastern wartime when the first bulletin broke. That was an Associated Press dispatch from London quoting the German radio as saying that the invasion of Western Europe had begun. At that moment, CBS News Director Paul White alerted his staff, although it wasn't until 3.32 a.m. that the news was officially confirmed by Allied headquarters. Until then, there was always the possibility that the Germans were perpetrating a hoax with the hope of smoking out the French underground. So the CBS staff stood by, keeping its network open and keeping its audience informed on what the enemy was saying. The first genuine tip-off came when the British radio told the Dutch that Le Havre was under bombardment. Meantime, the veteran CBS correspondent Bob Trout was giving listeners a running account of developments from our newsroom just outside this studio where I'm speaking now, carrying around a portable microphone as he went to the various news machines bringing in the reports in ever-increasing tempo. The CBS military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott, then joined our coverage from New York. And it was while Elliott and Trout were reporting from the newsroom that London gave us the first official communique from Eisenhower's headquarters, simply announcing that Allied forces with strong naval and air support had landed in northern France. Then the voice of Edward R. Murrow, chief of the CBS European staff, came on in London, and Quentin Reynolds joined the broadcasters here in New York. That's the world news picture as D-Day ends. But if you're interested in numerology, you might want to know that the European invasion started on the sixth hour of the sixth day of the sixth month, in curious contrast with the end of the last war, which ended on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. You've been listening to Ned Calmer in a summary of the news. Each night at the same time, CBS World News brings you an analysis of the latest news developments. Tonight, Quincy Howe. This has been a day of action abroad, a day of talk, reflection, and emotion at home. You've heard by now all the essential known facts about the Allied landings in Western Europe. They boil down to this. Allied forces have carried out their first operations on schedule with surprisingly small losses. This news, brief as it is, has immediate significance for every country in the world. To the peoples of occupied Europe, it means that their hour of liberation draws near. But their hour of liberation is also their hour of trial. We shall presently learn the real strength of the underground resistance movement in France. General de Gaulle and the French Committee now have their opportunity to prove their claim to represent their country. The White House State Department policy of non-recognition now meets its practical test. The exiled governments, which we do recognize, also approach their testing time. What strength and following have any of the resistance groups in Europe mustered? To whom do these groups look for leadership? To exiled leaders or to people in their own ranks? How do they feel about the British and the Americans, about our political plans, our air bombardments, our blockades? Are the people of Europe ripe for revolution? Do they want to exterminate all Germans? We don't need to speculate on how the British and the Russians feel. Today, the British Army has begun to pay back the Germans for the defeat at Dunkirk. But the British have non-military objectives, too. The part they're playing in this invasion puts them in position to become the controlling, if not the dominating, power in Western Europe after the war. Most of the exiled governments have maintained headquarters in London, and they and their people owe the British a heavy debt, which the British are in position to collect. Provided, provided, that is, that British casualties do not run up to nearly a million men as they did during the last war. For the British, with their declining birth rate, cannot lose another million young men and expect to remain a great power. 
especially now that they must double their export trade after the war in order to make up for the loss of revenue from foreign investments that the war has liquidated. The Russians have suffered far heavier losses than the British, but they have far greater reserves of manpower and natural resources on which to draw. As a great power, perhaps the great power of the second half of the 20th century, the Russians simply cannot miss. Today's landings in Western Europe not only improve Russia's military prospects by confronting Hitler with a three-front war, the Russians now have tangible practical proof that they can do business with Britain and the United States in war, and if war, in war, why not in peace? These prospects depress the Germans and the Japanese, too, every bit as much as they gratify the Russians. The Germans now have this three-front military war in their hands, and the Anglo-Soviet American coalition never looked stronger. And the prospects of Germany's defeat means that Japan's day of reckoning draws near, with Russia more closely tied to the Anglo-American powers. But for the United States, today's news has a unique significance. If our fighting men are not carrying more than their share of the first attack, it's at any rate certain that American supplies, American resources, and American reserves form the backbone of the whole vast enterprise of liberating Western Europe. Yet no responsible American has suggested that Europe be divided into spheres of influence. The whole sense of President Roosevelt's prayer was that our country is fighting for a better world, and we put far more into this war than we put into the last one when we fought for the same general purpose. For this war has brought the United States to the peak of its military, its economic, and its moral power. The United States has now thrown all this power into the greatest military campaign and the most ambitious program of popular liberation in all history. Our military prospects look good, but whether victory comes quick or slow, its cost comes high. At this moment in history, no nation can challenge our position or our power. How responsibly we use that position and that power will determine the future of our people. That was Quincy Howe in another analysis presented by CBS World News. Tomorrow night, William L. Shirer. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. At this time, Columbia brings you Joan Brooks. We will interrupt this program to bring you any late news developments. Again, CBS brings you 15 minutes of words and music by Joan Brooks, the girl with a voice you won't forget. Tonight, Joan respectfully dedicates her program to all the men and women of the armed forces, wherever they are working and fighting for their country. Joan begins with, look for the silver lining. Look for the silver lining whenever clouds appear in the blue. Remember somewhere the sun is shining And so the right thing to do is make it shine 
for you a heart full of joy and gladness will always banish sadness and strife. So always look for the silver lining, and you will find the sunny side of life. I can't find 
another word with meaning so clear. My lips try to whisper queer things in your ear. But somehow or other, nothing sounds quite so dear as this soft, caressing word I know. Amor, amor, my love. When you're away, there is no day and nights are lonely. Life divine, say you'll be mine and love me only. Thank you. 
I promise that Joan Brooks will be back with a heart full of every Monday through Friday over most of these same stations. Until tomorrow, then, let's say so long for now to Columbia's Joe Week speaking. This is CS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. CBS News headquarters in New York, Bob Trout speaking. We're about to bring you from London the first eyewitness recording of the shore bombardment preceding the actual landings of the invasion on D-Day and a description of Allied landing craft going into the beach, a recording made by George Hicks representing the Combined American Networks. So we take you now to London to hear George Hicks in a recording made aboard an American warship at sea. Go ahead, London. Bob Trout at our news headquarters in New York. We're trying to bring you a pool broadcast, the first eyewitness recording of the shore bombardment made by George Hicks aboard an American warship at sea. We'll try again. Go ahead, London. Are high up in the thin 
cloud, which is a gray screen over the sky, but which is not thick nor heavy and uh, uh, not low enough to be an inconvenience to bombing. The LCTs and the LCIs uh, have begun to pass along the side of us. Those are the amphibious beach landing craft that carry the tanks, trucks, bulldozers, and finally the men ashore. They've been turning along and are bouncing around in the choppy channel sea now. And all around us, uh, on either side, are stretched the fast transports at anchor who have disembarked these small craft. And they, uh, all over the surface of the sea here, can be seen cutting and zigzagging and then forming into those somewhat irregular lines. Beyond our control, the recording of the special broadcast for the American Networks by George Hicks will be delayed for a few moments. We return you now to the United States. Columbia's news headquarters in New York. We'll keep the air here until such time as Columbia's correspondent Charles Shaw, whom we just heard speaking in London, until such time as he tells us that uh, the pool recording is ready to go. Uh, you, you heard a few words of it. We regret that we're having trouble with our contact with London tonight. You heard a few words of the recording. It was a recording, an eyewitness recording of the shore bombardment preceding the actual landings of the invasion on D-Day and a description of the Allied landing craft going into their beach, a recording made by George Hicks representing the combined American networks. It's one of those broadcasts that we call a pool broadcast. That's the arrangement that has been fixed up during the first days of the invasion in order that everyone may share everyone else's dispatches. However, this was uh, not the story of a correspondent who had seen a uh, part of the operation and had returned to tell about it. This was an eyewitness recording of the bombardment as it went on. We hope that later we shall be able to bring it to you. The difficulty seems to be in London, as you heard our CBS correspondent in London, Charles Shaw, explaining to you a few moments ago. Meanwhile, we have a few dispatches that you may or may not have heard of as uh, you keep track of the news that is coming into Columbia's news headquarters in New York. Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Force announced in London this evening that General Eisenhower is directing the invasion of Western Europe from an advanced outpost in England. This denies a report which was broadcast by the Brazzaville radio that the commander had established headquarters on French soil. Also, we're told that General Bernard Sir Bernard Montgomery held an informal meeting with supporters on Tuesday and expressed pleasure at the official announcement of his appointment as the Allied assault commander because, he said, I always get along with the Americans. Despite the brand-new uniform from the United States which accompanied the appointment, General Montgomery was attired in his usual beret, gray sweater, and faded slacks. He was very pleased with his new American uniform, which had come straight from New York, and the Americans also had given General Montgomery a watch. A good watch, he said. It keeps time. We've been informed now that shortly we expect to be able to go to London and to uh, bring you the pool recording which we'd introduced a few moments ago. That is, the eyewitness recording of the shore bombardment preceding the invasion and a description of Allied landing craft given by George Hicks. Go ahead, London. 
This is George Hicks speaking. I'm speaking now from the tower above the signal bridge of an American naval flagship, and we're lying some few miles off the coast of France where the invasion of Europe has begun. It's now 20 minutes to 6, and the landing craft have been disembarked from their mothership and moving in in long, irregular lines toward the horizon of France, which is very plain uh, to the naked eye. Our own bombardment fleet lying out beyond us has begun to blast the shoreline, and we can see the vivid yellow bursts of flames uh, quite clearly, although the sound is too far away to be heard, and at the same time, from the shore, are answering yellow flames as the Nazi batteries are replying. Overhead, planes are high up in the thin cloud, which is a gray screen over the sky, but which is not thick nor heavy and uh, not low enough to be an inconvenience to bombing. The LCTs and the LCIs have begun to pass along the side of us. Those are the amphibious beach landing craft that carry the tanks, trucks, bulldozers, and finally the men ashore. They've been churning along and are bouncing around in the choppy channel sea now. And all around us, uh, on either side, are stretched the fast transports at anchor who have disembarked these small craft. And they, all over the surface of the sea here, can be seen cutting and zigzagging and then forming into those somewhat irregular lines that make a black uh, pencil point across the sea itself heading toward the ribbon of land that France and the coast of Normandy. We can see the wreaths of smoke that are beginning to puff up, both black and white, on the shoreline. France at this particular part of its northwestern sea coast has a rather shallow beach and then steep cliffs of 100 to 200 feet and then the rolling land beyond. This area is between Cherbourg and Le Havre. The wind has increased rather than diminished during the night and is now blowing an 18 knot wind which is pretty stiff and is kicking up white caps. However, the landing beach craft are going in and uh, are plowing through the choppy sea and seem to be making good headway. The order of the attack is for a naval bombardment, an air bombardment, and then landing crafts going in carrying tanks, then a wave of infantry to take the first toehold on the beaches, and then a wave of the beach demolition engineers who will knock out with hand charges the underwater obstacles and those on the shore itself. It's now becoming quite clear and daylight as 6 a.m. approaches on June 6, 1944. Occasionally in the stiff wind that's whipping around our platform, we can hear the thud of shells or bombs landing on the French coastline perhaps eight or ten miles before it. 
and the steel plate on which we stand vibrate from the concussion of the heavy guns that are firing from the American and British battleships and heavy cruisers forming a long line right behind us. I can count 22 of the squat, square-nosed landing craft carrying vehicles along one side of it as they turn and bounce in the choppy sea, waiting the exact timing to form their lines and start in toward the beach. When I had first begun speaking to you, it was the shore batteries of the Nazis that had spotted us here at sea and opened up, and our naval bombardment squad has replied to them. One battleship is in as close as three miles, and one of the famous American battleships, the Texas, is out six miles in her firing position. A duel is in progress now between a battleship lying just a couple of miles off the French shore and firing broadside into the land. The Germans are replying from the land with flashes, and then the battle, the ship, let's go with its entire broadside again. The whole side of the battle wagon lights up in a yellow glare as our broadside goes off, and now we can see brown gray smoke drifting up from her, from her gun barrel. Huge mushrooms of black and gray smoke are beginning to pile up off the beachheads of France, directly before us, uh, probably air bombardment. Two columns are beginning to rise higher than the hills behind them. And to the left is another single column. It's just burst down on the top of the cliff above the chalk wall facing the sea. And puffs of smoke are standing up now like plumes. A fire has been started on the beach front directly before us. And now batteries are firing from the beach, flashes of yellow, and the broadsides of the battleships are pouring it back at them. Overhead, high, planes are roaring. I think they just came in and dropped a salvo of bombs to stick uh, on that uh, the hilltop directly before us that we spoke of a moment ago. A mile flight of flying fortresses are passing over the invasion fleet. Bats can hear the roaring of their motors. 36, 38 planes against the wind that's rushing through the ringing of this mass top. Heavy bombardment, naval guns, Of the land. Although over into the east the sky has opened up, 
The loudspeaker on this flagship has been announcing almost continuously. Spitfires on our starboard bow. P-38, dead ahead. Air support. Here it comes for P-38 now. Following the fort. The air has simply been crisscrossed with the live displays of all types. The tank carrying and vehicle carrying landing craft have passed our ship and are beginning to form their line, which is already pointed towards the French coast. The earlier and smaller LCVTs, which carry infantry and personnel, have been en route now over 40 minutes. And according to the time schedule, should be hitting the French shore in 10 minutes from now. Everywhere you look in this jangled English channel, which is green and gold with the rift of the sunlight coming through broken clouds, everywhere you look are big uh, little ships of all kinds. The types that you almost have never seen before. The wind seems to be increasing in velocity, and it looks as though weather is turned a bit against it on the opening day's day. The Augusta, one of America's famous cruisers, is in off the shore there blasting, as well as the Texas, the Nevada, and the Arkansas. Old battleships and slow, but with terrific armament, 14-inch guns. They're just anchored off and blowing into the Nazi batteries on shore. It's now just a couple of minutes past 6.30 in the morning. First, the Allied forces are reaching the beaches in France. And that's the latest news that we can bring you from the invasion beachhead as it just now reaches H hour. This is George Higgins. I now return you to the United States. Back at Columbia's news headquarters in New York, what we have been hearing is the first eyewitness recording of the shore bombardment preceding the actual landings of the invasion and a description of Allied landing craft going into their beach. It's a recording which was made on D-Day just before H-Hour by George Hicks, who was representing the Combined American Network. And the recording was played for us in London. Incidentally, you may have heard Mr. Hicks speak of the weather. He mentioned it several times and said it was worsening. He said the wind was picking up, and at one point he said there was a wind with a velocity of 18 knots. About an hour ago, I believe it was, Columbia's correspondent in London uh, gave us uh, fresh dispatch, which of course was a later dispatch than George Hicks' recording, and Mr. Merrill told us that the weather in the channel is definitely worse. Mr. Merrill's news was almost 24 hours later than Mr. Hicks' recording. Mr. Merrill said there's a strong wind blowing across the channel tonight, and sizable waves are hitting the beaches, which will increase our problems of supply. Also, Mr. Merrill said that Britain's big bombers, the big heavy night bombers of the Royal Air Force, have again crossed the channel, but so far tonight we have no details. Late this evening, according to Royal Air Force pilots returning from low-level flights over the beachheads, the Allied troops are moving inward. The Royal Air Force pilots report that there is no longer any opposition on the beaches on which we landed. These beaches are now completely in Allied hands. And one of the returning Royal Air Force pilots said, we could tell easily that the beaches are secure. We could see our soldiers below standing up. 
We could see our tanks moving up on Caen, and in the area inland we saw several fires. They looked like gasoline dumps. When we left after the last sorties, we could see no enemy infantry at this point near the coast. Our balloons were already over the landing beaches, guarding the ships from low-level attack by any German, air, German fighters which might be about. But the lack of air opposition from the German Air Force was fantastic. That's the word that these Royal Air Force fighter pilots who made low-level flights over the beachheads, that's the word they used to describe the lack of air opposition from the German Air Force. They say, fantastic. And now here's a word from an American transport pilot, Lieutenant James B. Crawley of Springfield, Illinois, a United States Army 9th Air Force C-47 transport pilot who flew two loads of paratroops and supplies behind the German lines in the invasion, reports that on his last trip Tuesday, he saw American soldiers lounging on the French roads. He could look down below and see them there. And Lieutenant Crawley said the doughboys were leaning on their rifles and they were quietly awaiting mess call. A German broadcast, which was heard here in New York tonight, said that heavy German tank attacks have been launched against the Allied beachhead east of Cherbourg. This German broadcast, beamed to the United States, claims that beachhead forces have been wiped out 15 miles northwest of Caen and also Isigny, which is 32 miles west-northwest of the town of Caen. That's a German broadcast. It was made in the English language. It was beamed to the United States. It is what the Germans want us to think at this moment. We have no news of any kind that has anything to do with that information, if that's what we shall call it, which has been sent in a German broadcast beamed to the United States. Bring you up to date a little bit. We were going to go to England, as a matter of fact, in a few moments. We're still waiting for the signal, and I'll bring you up to date a little bit farther before we make the switch. Earlier, if you were with us, you uh, heard us telling you that the first ground forces to land on the French beaches were Americans. But about an hour before the landing was made on the beaches, combined British and American paratroopers shared the honors of being the first soldiers to set foot on French soil. These paratroopers battled the Germans for several hours before the main landings on the beaches. A bit later, we got a dispatch from the Canadians, and that dispatch tells us that the men who sought revenge for the landing at Dieppe took just two hours and 45 minutes to establish the beachhead assigned to them. The Canadians overcame numerous steel and wooden obstacles placed in the tidal approaches, and they also plowed through fierce enemy beachhead fire. And then the Canadians went on to stiff street fighting in little coast towns. We're still waiting at Columbia's news headquarters here in New York for word that our Columbia correspondent in London is ready. We haven't had such word. And so uh, while we're waiting... Columbia's war correspondent, Quentin Reynolds, has been sitting at the desk beside me here in our news headquarters. He was going to speak to us a bit later after we'd picked up London. We'll have London shortly, we expect. And now, here is Quentin Reynolds to discuss for us the relationship between United States and British troops taking part in the landing. Quentin Reynolds. A few moments ago, a report came in here from London saying that today General Montgomery held a press conference at which he told correspondents that he had just received a present, a brand new watch from a group of Americans. It's a good watch, too, Monty grinned to the correspondent. It keeps time. Then Montgomery added, I always get along well with Americans. In one of the earlier reports from a London CBS correspondent today, we heard that the cooperation between American and British troops had been beautiful. This gift to the general from a group of American civilians 
is merely a reflection of the fine cooperation which exists between the British and the American fighting men once they get into action. This comes as no surprise to anyone who has been with our troops abroad and has been with the British abroad. Comes as no surprise to anyone who knows how General Eisenhower operates. This might be a good time to bring the whole subject of relations between British and American troops right out into the open. Two years ago, we used to hear of occasional clashes in London between American and British soldiers. They would meet at dances, at pubs. They'd have a few beers, and sometimes a careless word would be spoken. The fur would fly, and stories would go out that British and Americans just couldn't get along. The truth of it is, and I was there in London then, that the British and American soldiers had no chance to meet on any common ground of respect for each other. They only knew each other when they were on leave, playing. Then we landed in North Africa, and the real fighting began for us. Our boys found it tough. It was the first time they'd been in combat. Finally, they joined forces with Montgomery's 8th Army. Now, for the first time, they got a chance to see the British soldier in action. The 8th Army had learned its trade the hard way through three hard, bitter years of desert fighting. This was probably the greatest of all armies. Our boys now looked at the British through different eyes. These were fighting devils who never asked what the odds were. The 8th Army had a motto, attack and pursue. Our boys liked that. It's the American tradition to like a sense of fighters. Jack Dempsey is still a hero to millions of us. The 8th Army is the Jack Dempsey of this war. When General Eisenhower was selected to be the supreme commander of all Allied forces, the greatest cheers came from British officers and men who recognized the genius of this brilliant yet human American commander. Then Eisenhower, looking the field over, chose as his ground commander General Montgomery. He asked Montgomery whom he would like to have as his second-in-command. Monty didn't hesitate a moment. He immediately said, General Omar Bradley. Bradley commanded the Second Corps in the Sicilian campaign. In our high command, no distinction was made as to whether an officer was American or British. The only question was, who was the best man? I remember when the Solano campaign was being planned. Colonel Darby was in command of our rangers. Brilliant Colonel Darby, one of the real heroes of this war. Only 27, and the toughest ranger of them all. He was to command a combined force of American rangers and British commandos. And they were to storm the heights above Salerno and secure a pass that led to Naples. The commandos were led by a British general, Brigadier Richardson. He was asked to retire from the operation because Darby, who was to be in charge of it, was only a colonel, and military tradition was all against a brigadier serving under a colonel. The British brigadier went to General Eisenhower. He protested and insisted that he go along with the commandos and the rangers on the operation, and he added sincerely, I know Colonel Darby. I will consider it a privilege to serve under him in any capacity. And so for the first time in history, a brigadier served under a colonel. And the two made a beautiful team, a typical Eisenhower team. 
A typical example of the way British and American officers and fighting men serve and work together. I remember just three days after we landed at Solano. Our 36th Division of Texas had had a very tough three days. They'd fought bravely. But the German 88s, high in the hills commanding the beaches, had taken a frightful toll. I went ashore and joined them and talked to the men. A big strapping sergeant asked me, Hey, when are them Limeys going to get up here to help us out? I couldn't help but kid him a little. I said, I remember when you guys used to kid the British. Now you need them. Now you want their help. Yeah, that's right, the big Texan grinned. But that was before we saw them fight. I sure would like to see that little Montgomery in his funny black beret walking along this beach. Well, a few days later, Monty and his 8th Army did join our 5th Army, and the result is history. Now when our men call the British soldier a limey, he grins when he says it, and the British soldier grins back. They have a firm basis of respect for each other. Both are great fighting men, and fighting men can get along pretty well together anywhere. This is Eisenhower's way. Don't worry about our boys not getting along with their British comrades in arms. They're both fighting on the same side under two great men and months. I return you now to Bob Trout. That was Quentin Reynolds here at our news headquarters in New York. And now at almost 6 o'clock in the morning in London, we're going to switch you to London once again. And this time we're going to hear from Columbia's correspondent, Charles Shaw. Go ahead, London. It's almost 6 a.m. in London. And the invasion news reaching here is still favorable. The weather in the Channel still leaves much to be desired. But it's believed that reinforcements are continuing to flow across the France without interruption. Allied commanders are optimistic. And the German radio still is making no attempt to disguise the magnitude of the Allied attack. All has gone well on D-Day. The liberation of Europe is not being accomplished by robots. The story of the Second Front is the story of your son your kid brother, and of men whose personalities and achievements have commanded the headlines. From commanders down to buck privates, the Allied Invasion Army is a human army. General Montgomery was beaming today, not only because he was proud to have been officially revealed as the Allied Invasion Commander, but also because he had been given a new battle dress and a new watch by the American Army. The invasion troops were proud that they had been selected for participation in the greatest show on earth, although they fully realized that they weren't in for any picnic. A veteran of Dunkirk cried, and admitted he cried, when he flew his Spitfire over the French coast to help his earth and sea-bound buddies take the road back. A French pilot was thrilled at the sight of his homeland, even though he had to drop bombs on it, because he said it meant that he was on his way home. General Montgomery said he was happy to be the Allied assault commander because I always get along well with Americans. As proof that he gets along well with our folks, he drew attention to his new battle dress, the finest suit I ever had, and his new watch, a good one which keeps time. General Montgomery has been confident all day long, but he warned that there may be a bit of a roughhouse before we are finished. Montgomery's boss, General Eisenhower, also impressed correspondence with his confidence. But the greatest impression he made came from his visits to his, his troops just before each hour and the informal way he talked with the soldiers. He asked the members of one airborne outfit who was their toughest soldier. One GI answered, wait until we land and then we'll find out. 
The general asked the outfit to send their champion back to him, and he'd have something for him. But today was not a general's day. It was the G.I.'s and the junior officers' day. The generals had done everything they could. Success of the initial operations depended on the G.I.'s and the shave tails who led them. It depended on the sailors and coast guardsmen who manned the invasion craft and the warships. There were admirals at sea today also, but the execution of their orders depended on the gradeless boys. 